Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the first QB to win a Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, Brett Johnson. Johnson trying to get in there. Johnson for the end zone. Touchdown. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we sit down with a 15-year NFL veteran. He's a two-time Pro Bowler and won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2003. But more importantly, I just found out he's on TikTok. He's a star on TikTok. Big bad Brad. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Brad Johnson. Brad, thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate Brad. Thank you, man. TikTok star. My tagline is, Backed by popular man, popular on the East Coast, popular on the West Coast, and everywhere in between. So <laughs> I've had fun with TikTok, but I, I appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you. I, I love it. Uh, and I just, you know, I just kind of <laughs> fell on to TikTok. And I, I think of TikTok and I think, oh, that's what my kids would be on. But they like, Dad, you should you should watch some of these TikTok videos. And I saw you and, and it was cracking. But you're doing, you're doing like, not feats of strength, but you're making shots from how many takes is it is it taking you to make those football those passes? Well, I tell people it's a lifetime of practice. I've been doing this all my life, and now I kind of let everybody get the share. But I used to laugh with it and say it's first time, first take. But some of that stuff, I'll be honest with you, I could be out there for days. It could be a all my all my videos, the trick shot stuff. Honestly, it's not about hitting one shot, like hitting it with a hammer, the full length of the court. It's it's really about making shots in sequence, three, four, maybe five shots in a row. It may be a spin off my finger, then over the backboard and bounce it in the ground, and and then behind my back, and then throw a football the length of the court and it goes to the goal. Those kind of things. And so, if I don't make it, then I go back and start from the very first shot. So some of it, it could it could be done in five minutes. And some of it, it could take six hours. So, <laughs> get a little exercise. And you got your you got your son involved. He's he's it, father. Son, you got the father son duo. My favorite though is the Vision Quest. You getting a little workout yeah. and little jump rope. Yeah, you and I we grew up in the same era. I think I'm fifty three. How old are you now? Fifty two. How, how are you, Brad? Yeah, fifty two. So we, we 52. <laughs> graduated yeah. high school in eighty seven. One of my favorite. Yeah, my favorite movies back in the 80s were Karate Kid and Rocky Balboa and obviously Vision Quest with Loud and, uh, Loud and Swain. And, uh, you know, so that, those are you know, those are kind of the workout videos we did growing up. And, and uh, so I, I, I still work out today. And I kind of, on the TikToks, I do kind of share some of the, the workout videos and those kind of things. And, and uh, so I kind of, kind of put a little of the old school music in it. Very cool. All right. Born in Marietta, Georgia. Football player, obviously a basketball player. Uh, Brad Johnson as a kid. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, I actually grew up in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It's near Asheville, North Carolina, near the Billmore House in Western Carolina. My dad, he ran summer camps called Camp Ridgecrest and Crest Ridge for boys and girls. It's a Christian camp. And um, in the camps, it, it's overnight, staying in cabins and uh, – we did. You had lakes to jump in. You had kayaks to, to do. You had. Uh, we played two square, four square archery, horseback. Um, you name any sport, we were doing it all. And so I always had someone to play with. Always someone older to play with. 
and usually someone took me under the wing. And I love sports. My mom was a uh, she was an all state basketball player and uh, won a state championship. And she actually coached high school basketball. And my dad, he was all my he coached all my youth football, baseball, and basketball teams. And we grew up on a, I grew up on a grew up on a in a development called Charmel D Acres in Black Mountain. And it's a dirt road. And lived up about halfway up the mountain. If you looked across from the mountain, you could actually see uh, Billy Graham. Uh, you could see hit the light on his house. So it was really cool where I grew up. And the basketball goal that I had, it was a telephone pole with a, um, a wooden backboard. And it was on a dirt road. Never got a pure bounce because the rock's on the ground. So it's pretty – if you missed a shot, <laughs> you had to retrieve it. And it would go down the hill. So you had to be a good rebounder too or make your shots and get it. High school, uh, you're all state in hoops, all American quarterback, high school all American. Um, you go to college, at Florida State, and you're a basketball player and a football player. I'm interested in during that high school career, who came in to see you more? Was it more for the hoops? Was it more for the football? Yeah, yeah. Basketball was my passion, Brett. I never missed a day of playing basketball from my second grade all the way through my freshman year of college. Um, a guy named Roy Williams used to coach at our high school. He just made Hall of Fame, and he was the head basketball coach at North Carolina. And uh, my basketball coach was a guy named Bill Burroughs. And the guy in front of me was uh, a few years – the graduate in front of me was a guy named Brad Doherty. Brad was a seven-footer, uh, maybe 6'11". He had back surgery, so he lost an inch. But Brad Doherty was a high school All-American, McDonald's All-American out of Owen High School. And uh, he ended up uh, going to North Carolina and then playing the NBA. He was an all-pro you know, all player there. And so the guy that set the standard was a guy named Brad Doherty. I wanted to play college and pro basketball. I loved basketball, um, loved it. And so growing up, I was a kid that could throw, I could throw a rock, I could throw a baseball, I could definitely throw a football, but I had a passion for basketball. And football was something I could do. I made All-American, but honestly, I didn't know how to do a three-step, a five-step. I didn't know cover three, cover two, and I was more chunk it and see where it went, you know, those kind of things. And yeah. so my, my goal was to play for a guy named Bobby Cremins at University of Georgia Tech basketball. I went to all his camps growing up and so on my recruiting at that time in nineteen um, in my year we graduated, nineteen eighty seven, I was in Bobby Crimson's office and he said, Brad, you got a scholarship here, but you know only play five guys. And there's a guy named Dennis Scott that um he's he's in your position. He's the Ford, you know? And uh so you'll play you'll be on the bench behind him. And Dennis Scott, he changed my life and he doesn't even know my name probably and he played eleven years in the NBA and and uh, But Coach Crimmins, he was honest to me in the recruiting process. He's like, Brad, what do you think you got more potential in? And what, what's your goals? I said, I want to play pro one day, and I think I got more potential in football and basketball. So that's he kind of encouraged me to go football. And so at that time, there was a guy named Benny Testaverde, and uh, he just coming out of the University of Miami as a Heisman winner, six foot five, two twenty five, uh, quarterback, and and that was what Florida State was selling me on, and, and Bobby Bowden, and that's kind of where I made my decision to go play. Uh, to go play football. Interesting, the the combination of basketball and football, not too many of you out there. Um, you know, I remember talking to my dad. My dad went to Stanford in in the right. 60s, late 60s. And he he went to, to college on a – he had a split contract. So, well, not contract, but scholarship. So he was 
half baseball, half basketball. And back then, they didn't, as a freshman, you weren't allowed to play varsity athletics in college. So he went to Stanford right. and he had to play on the freshman team. And my dad, he's a pretty humble guy, but but I, I heard the stories about, you know, he was this in, in the San Diego area. He was born and raised and he was pretty good. And right. he, he said, Brett, I got to college at Stanford. He said, I went, to, <laughs> I started working out with the freshman basketball team, not even the big boys, the varsity. And he said, within a matter of a couple weeks, I knew that I'm out of my league here. These guys are too good. You know, I was pretty good down in my little neck of the woods in San Diego, but this is a different right. level. And he said right then he started concentrating on baseball because he knew he had no chance uh, basketball wise. So, so when I, you know, when I do my research and I was, I was, you know, seeing Brad Johnson and growing up in, in the Florida state, we all know Brad Johnson as a football player, but uh, right. it, that was really interesting to me. How was that balancing the two? And especially because they butt up against each other, um, the seasons butt up against each other. How was that for you uh, juggling football and needing to know the plays and playing hoops? Yeah, it was tough in college. I went to Florida State on a football scholarship. So the first year I was being redshirted. And so about halfway through the season, I was like, I was helping run a scout team, but I really wasn't doing anything. So I asked Coach Bowden, I said, Coach Bowden, you know, you, you said I could play two sports here. And obviously I'm not doing much right now. we got five or six other quarterbacks. I doubt I'm going to get to play, um, plus being redshirted. So he said, yeah, go on, boy, go ahead and play basketball. So I left probably uh, late October. only missed a week or two of basketball at that time. So earned my way in. I started about half the season. And we went to the NCAA tournament, Went actually went two years in a row. But in the spring, we had 20 practices, and I missed the first 10 days of practice. And I was competing against other quarterbacks, especially Casey Weldon, who was my best friend. And then the next year, kind of leading into it, was, you know, then I was a part of the team, more on the football team. So then I couldn't leave the football team until late December. And there was a time where uh, we were playing in the Sugar Bowl, and I actually left the Sugar Bowl on the day of the uh, the day before the game. Flew down to Orlando, played against Pittsburgh, uh, Charles Smith, and a bunch of those guys. They're number one in the country. And then, and after the game, I flew back to football practice the next morning. So, but then when it came to spring football again, I missed half of the practice. So Coach Bowden said, "Brad, you know you're competing against someone in football. You're competing against guys in basketball." you're going to have to not make a choice, but it's it's going to help you. <laughs> he was kind of highly encouraged me to pick one sport. And, and he was right. I went there to become, you know, the best quarterback I, be, I could be and eventually hopefully make it to the pros. And I knew I needed to make a decision, you know, because I was more of a role player in basketball at the college level. And looking at your college career football-wise, uh, it's not the prototypical uh, career in college that, that – your pro career to follow, you know, you're, right. you're a pro bowler in the NFL and, and you're a Super Bowl champion. That's not how it started out college wise. You weren't the, the, uh, you know, the Rick Meyer of college football. Right. Right. No, it, 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 things have changed now, Brett. Like, so if a kid now doesn't start his freshman year, he's probably looking to transfer. And back in the eighties, when we were going, you kind of felt like you had to earn your way up. And we, we would ask to be redshirted. So I asked to be redshirted and our goal then at that time, there's three other quarterbacks in front of me. It was kind of, kind of wait your turn. You know, there's Danny McManus and Pierre Tom Willis and came in with Casey Weld. And with me behind me was Charlie Ward and Chris Winkie. And 
we all knew we kind of would have to wait two or three years before we got our turn. And so I got redshirted, and then for two years I backed up. I was a number three quarterback, and then my junior year I started like the first six games of the season. I thought I was playing pretty well. I got benched by benching my my brother-in-law, Mark Rick. <laughs> That's another <laughs> yeah. story in itself. But, uh, but, and then I was competing with Casey Weldon, and Casey ran off for the team. He was uh, ended up being the weird number one team in the country for most of the year, our senior year, our fifth-year senior year, and he was a runner-up to the Heisman. So I only got to start one game my senior year. And honestly, I only threw 13 touchdowns in my five years at Florida State. My son's at LSU, and he's thrown more touchdowns than I did in four games than, <laughs> than I did my whole career. So, But looking back at it, Brett, I, I actually I, I talk, we talked about basketball being – that was my passion. I was probably a late bloomer in football, and I grew into my passion of football and got better and better, probably more so in the pros than I was in college. But, you know, things just didn't work out my way in college. But the greatness of it was the work ethic, dealing with adversity. Those are things I embraced. And I respected the coaches for the way things went down, too. So there was never never bad blood, never anything bad to say. I only had total respect for Coach Bowden and Coach Rick and Florida State program. You end up being the ninth-round pick of the Vikings in 92. Uh, and we talk about, you know, our time there. You know, we're both 87 graduates of high school. Um, and things have changed since then. NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, everything's changed. You know, we're kind of in a changing world. But how did you get ready for the draft that particular year? Yeah, it was interesting. I only started my one game my senior year. Right. So, you, so you're they, out they there. You got to impress these guys. Yeah, I was there to showcase, man. You know, <laughs> so yeah. at the combine, they, they bring in 20 quarterbacks. They actually bring in 17 those are the main 17 guys, and they bring in three extra guys. And the three extra guys is me, T.J. Rubley, and um, um, golly, um, Bucky Richardson. So basically, we're the guys that throw to the DBs, the linebackers, the tight ends. But we're going to get tested with the quarterbacks when the quarterbacks get to go. The quarterbacks really only throw to the receivers. So I was there, and when the weekend was over, I'll be honest with you, I thought I was the best quarterback there. I did. But the difference was <laughs> every general manager and every coach didn't think the same thing. So I was the 14th quarterback that was drafted. I was the 227th uh, overall quarterback, uh, overall player that was drafted in the ninth round. They only had they only have uh, 12 rounds at that time. Now they only have like six or seven rounds. So I was grateful for the opportunity. And I remember during the draft on the actual draft day. Uh, the New York Giants. I, I had a great relationship with a guy named Jim Foss, who actually passed away a few months ago. But he, uh, they said they're going to draft a guy probably in the mid-rounds. In the fourth round, they drafted Kent Graham out of Ohio State University. And I was like, holy cow, I don't know if I'll, anybody will take a chance on me. In the seventh round, uh, a friend of mine, Dave Campo, uh, was equipment manager for Atlanta Falcons. He said, Brad, no one picks you up. We'd like you to come in as a free agent. And I told Campo, I said, Campo, man, I'm done, man. If, I, if I'm a free agent – that means you probably ain't going to keep me anyways. I'm going back home to North Carolina. I'll be a school teacher, coach P and be a high school coach. You know, he's like, don't, Hey, don't give in like that. And then the ninth round, my name came across the ticker. Me and my dad were laying on the, on the dorm room floor and couches. And, and uh, my name came, my dad got excited. And I said, what, what? He said, I think your name came across the ticker. So what? So we waited for like another minute. It came across Brad Johnson, 227 pick to the Minnesota Vikings. 
And so we kind of celebrated, just me and my dad. And then about five minutes later, Denny Green called and said, hey, congratulations, you've been drafted. And that's kind of the way it went down. Very cool. You go to the Vikings. Uh, you're behind Salisbury and, and Rich Gannon. And I, I got a little question for you later because Gannon is is a big part of your life in NFL life. Um, take me from, from the college game to the pro game, uh, your third string, your first year. Uh, take me through that a little bit. I end up in 94. We'll get to it. But uh, you end up b- backing up Warren Moon. I want to hear about uh, how instrumental that was, how much how much that benefited you throughout your NFL career. Yeah, we get to the Minnesota Vikings. The guy that drafted me pretty much was a guy named Jack Burns, who recruited me out of University of Louisville, coming out of high school. And he just kind of kept up my career. So he made the pick on me. And, and it, just, it was going to be more of a de- draft and develop me over time. And so – uh, honestly, I didn't know much about it. it we'd get, there was a box count, cover three, cover two, and, and those things. And they'd say, double right, check with me. And I'd say, check what? You know? <laughs> I didn't really, And he said, well, you got your three staple checks. You got Charlie 10 hits. You got Scram, 40, uh, Scram 55. And you got Silver Silver, which is a speed out package. And it took me a while to learn it, to be honest with you. And But I got to watch. For two years, I didn't really get any reps in practice. I did training camp, but – yeah, uh, my first year, Rich Gannon was a starter. Next year was Jim McMahon, and but I wouldn't. I didn't get any first team reps, obviously. And second team reps went to the number two guy, so I didn't get any reps. I was a warm up guy, and so my reps came through throwing into a net on Tuesdays on our day off, or throwing to someone after practice, or getting to the stadium early on game days and throwing to whoever I could find that wanted to catch balls. So, uh, but I had a lot to learn. But I was I was a, in a developmental process and eventually kind of worked my way up into it. And, and my dad always told me, he said, it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than to have an opportunity and, and not be prepared. So I was fortunate I wasn't thrown into the fire too fast. Some guys get thrown there too fast and the careers are short. And uh, so I kind of I learned the system. I was in one system for seven years, a Minnesota system, and then kind of grew into the player I was later on. Oh, it's so interesting to, uh, to me, though, because it's the NFL is so much different than than uh major league baseball you know we've got the minor leagues and, and you mentioned it's it's tough you got to go out and create your own reps you're, you're third string it's like you're not getting what you need uh and you're just kind of learning through other people you know baseball you've got the minor leagues you, if you need two years of a ball they have that you can go out and get 400 500 at bats in your plan whereas the minor leagues in the nfl is basically division one football so once you get there, yeah. if you're not starting, it's it, it's it's just a different dynamic than than my life and when I went through. And and it's interesting, uh, you know, I've had some quarterbacks on on the program recently. Recently, we had Rick Meyer, who who was you know the number two pick at all uh, out of Notre Dame and was this great quarterback. Right. Got to the NFL and he got thrown in the fire. He started his rookie year. And he did well, yep. but but he said after going through my career, uh, I wish I would have I, I would have come in under a great quarterback and learned the system a little better. I think it would have benefited me in the long run. And that's an interesting take because you know as kids, especially as young men, man, we're in the NFL. We want to play. We want to play every down. I wanted to get. I wanted to you know play every game. I wanted six hundred bats. I wanted to be in the big leagues when I was in a ball, and I had I had no business being in the big leagues. That's just the way we're wired back then. But it's pretty yep. cool as as we 
go through life and our careers and then, you know, go through fatherhood and, and we become mature men. Looking back, we can be honest and say, you know, I wish I would have done this a little bit differently. And, and these are things we pass on to our kids who they probably won't listen anyway. But uh, yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic that the NFL has that Major League Baseball doesn't have. Uh, in 1995, and, and I want to know if this was pivotal in your career, you go overseas and you play in London. And, I, and I, I was trying to think, what is this equal to as an NFL player to, to Major League Baseball? And I came up with it. It's probably like when, when the guys go play winter ball, maybe in the Dominican Republic or, or Puerto Rico. Uh, what was that like for you? How much did you learn? I know you did well there. You got to play at the famous Wembley Stadium in Europe. Uh, how did that experience help you going forward in your NFL career? Yeah, it's like getting those reps. You know, in basketball, you can get in the gym and you can just go play ball, you can play hoops. And baseball, you can go get you can go get your cuts in the swing, you know, in the batting cage, and you you can go play minor league and second, you know, double A ball, triple A ball, and all the winter ball and all that kind of stuff. But football, it's not like that. You know what I mean? You <laughs> you got to put a helmet on, a mouthpiece, and go play. And there's just not enough games that can be played. You only play once a week. Those kind of things. So. You know, I'd been at that time. I'd been with the the Vikings for three years. I'd, uh, Rich Cannon was a starter. Jim McMahon my second year. Then Warren Moon came, and then I felt like I was actually practicing really well. And uh, but I asked Brian Billick, who was our coordinator at that time, said, "Hey, there's this new league. It's coming back. It's the World League." And there were six teams being played. It was London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, uh, Dusseldorf, Scotland, and one other team. But and so I, I got allocated to go over there. There was there's only 38 players on the team. Eight of them were foreigners. 30 of them were either allocated or, or guys that trying to get you know, practice squad kind of players in the NFL. So it was. It was really because I didn't play much in college. I've been three years in the pros. I needed to go chance to go make plays, go make mistakes, go win games, go lose games, go throw touchdowns, go throw interceptions. I just I needed to play. And so that that league at that time, it's it's not like they run the same plays that you're your team does in Minnesota. I mean, so I had to go learn a whole new system. And really the guys that have been successful were uh, myself, Kurt Warner, John Kidna, Jay Fiedler, and a couple others maybe they hung on, but it was either a feast or famine. I mean, you could, you could ruin your career over there too now. So, but I loved, I loved that opportunity to go play and I needed it. And it kind of helped me uh, make those plays and make mistakes and learn what I could do as a leader and what chances to take and, and just how to lead a team. So I, I was thankful for that opportunity. 96, you get an opportunity. Uh, Warren Moon goes down with an ankle injury. He's, you end up starting eight out of 12 games. Uh, 97, you're named the starter for the first time. Start 12 games, and, and then you're sidelined with a neck injury. Um, how are you feeling now? You know, you've been through and, and from what I'm hearing, man, it's been a it, you're earning your stripes. I mean, you're really earning them with your college career, saying you, your son right now has more touchdowns uh, than you did in your whole college career. You're backing up, constantly backing up. You go to you go over to that world league and, and finally get your reps in that in that game atmosphere, which. By the way, I don't think you can really, you know, you mentioned baseball and yeah, we have that cage and we can go out and get our reps, our reps, our reps, but nothing replaces that competition between that hitter and that, in that pitcher. You know, you can, right. 
you can have all the, oh, man, my swing feels good in that cage. My swing feels good in that cage. They throw you out against Garrett Cole, and your swing might not yeah. feel that good <laughs> anymore. You know, so I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah. But, but you're finally getting that opportunity to start, and it's been a long haul for you. I mean, I I salute you for the, for the perseverance. I mean, you've been, you've been waiting yeah. for this a long time, and you're finally getting into your uh, – that zone and becoming, you know, making a name for yourself as an NFL quarterback. Uh, take me through those years when you first get that starting job. Yeah, I think you got to enjoy the grind. You know what I mean? That's where I go back to my dad saying you better be prepared and not have an opportunity and have an opportunity and not be prepared. So when my moment came, Brad, I, I was ready to strangle it, man. I was holding on and not letting go. And uh, I loved it. I came with boxing gloves on every day fighting for my spot, fighting for reps, and <laughs> all those kind of things. But I knew the system. I've been in that system for – I ended up playing the Minnesota system for seven years and was playing winning football and uh, had a high completion percentage ratio and, and giving our team a chance to win week in and week out. I had some come-from-behind games and won and those kind of things. And so um felt like I was playing at, you know, at a high, high level and gave our team a chance to get in the playoffs the years I started. And so when I went through – in 97, I went through a major neck injury. And it was a game where I actually was playing the Green Bay Packers on Monday Night Football. And and um, I had a high ankle sprain from the week before. I didn't know if I was going to play from a high ankle sprain. I woke up with a crick in my neck. And I told Randall Cunningham, I said, dude, I don't think I can move. I can't move my neck. And so that day, I took a bunch of flexural. And you can only imagine. And then had massages and all that stuff. My mom actually drove me to the game because I didn't know if I was even going to I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't turn to look which way I was going to go, but try to play the game. First half, I had to come out of the game, and I remember the bright lights were on me doing the interviews, and they're like, what happened? What kind of reason? And I lost all my hand strength in my hand. I couldn't pick up a telephone. I couldn't couldn't hold up a pencil, and not alone a football. And uh, so I lost everything. The next day I had surgery, and then there there came another grind of you know trying to get the strength back from my neck injury and all those kind of things. So it, every day was a grind for me. Uh, trying to get that opportunity and thought I'll play well, but I had to deal with some injuries, you know. 99, Dennis Green trades you to the Redskins. Uh, we're going to go play for Norv Turner, who we had on the on the podcast recently. Uh, ends up pre- being a pretty good fit for your pro bowler for the first time. You throw for over 4,000 yards. Uh, take me through that. Take me through that first pro bowl season uh, for Brad Johnson. Yeah, I got traded to uh, to Washington, playing for North Turner. He- heard a lot about him, obviously through uh, you know coordinators with Dallas Cowboys. He, at the time, he had been um, in Washington for a few years, but some of the quarterbacks he had were younger quarterbacks, and and but I heard great things about him, and I love playing for North. I knew he was great at the running game, knew he was great at the play action, uh, calling the great shots, deep shots down the field, play action games. So they hadn't been in the playoffs since 1992. I was there in 99. That year, um, I think we were 10-6, and six, won the division, threw over 4,000 yards, which at that time was a big deal. The game's changed now. But I absolutely love playing for Norv and, and winning the division there, kind of bringing back life. And, and you know, for the Redskins at that time, was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, it was one of the highlights of my, uh, of my career. Another hiccup in the road for you in 2000. They fired Norv, bring in a new coach. I don't even know who the new coach was. But they end up going with Jeff George after your 99 Pro Bowl season. Now, I just put myself – I tried to – you know, when I was going through this, I'm trying to put myself in in your shoes, and I'm going, wait a minute. 
So I just I just made my first all-star team. And, and next year I'm being replaced at my position. It, it doesn't add up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good good uh, comparison. But what are you thinking in 2000 after that uh, after that 99 season? Now now the the head guy's Jeff George. Well, I did. You know, be honest with you, Brett. The one you know, we're all taught. The, the only thing you can control. The two things you can control is your attitude and effort. Okay. So I felt like I was playing well. I was there for two years, uh, ten and six, won the re- won the division. The next year was seven and four. Team goes eight and eight. Um, but sometimes it, you want it to be a coach's decision. That wasn't a coach's decision on who was playing. So it was time to move on in free agency, and that's that's kind of how that ended my time uh, in Washington. My contract was up, and so it kind of you know I had the choice. I could come back and play for Marty Marty Schottenheimer, who was there. Uh, as a new coach, and I just I told you know Coach, Schott- coach Schottenheimer at that time it was just time to I felt like we were heading in different directions and I want to move on in free agency and they let me have that let me have that right. You go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, play for Tony Dungy, uh, throw for under over thirty four hundred yards uh, in two thousand one two thousand two biggest year of your career you're a pro bowler uh you're super bowl champ uh and you end up beating the raiders and and your old <laughs> your old buddy that you backed up rich rich gannon playing under gruden um t- talk about that year you know there's a lot of uh, we had andre reed on on the program and and everybody yeah, yeah. talks about those those buffalo bill teams you know they went to four straight super bowls and couldn't get it done you know i'm sure kelly takes a lot of slack a lot of guys uh, at our level you know baseball basketball football sometimes you know when i talk to fans it's like man I, and I watch it. You were getting ready for the for the postseason in Major League Baseball right now, and, and I watch and I'm interested because I know how hard it is to win the big one. I know how hard it is yeah. to bring home that 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 World Series uh, trophy because I got to a World Series and and I got whooped. You know, I played with some unbelievable players that never got a chance to go to a World Series. This is your first Super Bowl. Take me through that that whole year of 2002. It had to be pretty awesome for you. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible, incredible time. And uh, John Gruden got hired as a new coach. And um, as soon as he became the new coach, I called the first guy I called was Rich Gannon. And Rich was at, I think he's at a Minnesota Timberwolves game or hockey game or something. He said, Brad, you're going to, he'd been with, he'd been with Gruden for probably three or four years. And he was on a high level now. They were, they were rolling. They went to AFC championship maybe once or twice at that time. And, but, but I remember Rich was sad. He's like, dude, I hate it. He's, I'm, I'm gonna miss him. I love him. He said, Brad, but I'm excited for you. He said, you're gonna be programmed. Uh, he's gonna teach you more football than you could ever imagine. He said, just take it in and ride with it. You're gonna love it. And so I did. I remember the first meeting I went in Gruden's office, and he said, uh, he said, Brad, we're gonna win. A, we're gonna win the Super Bowl this year. So we're gonna declare war on our defense on Rondé Barber and Simeon Rice and John Lynch and Warren Sapp and Derrick Brooks. We're declaring war on them. How's Monty Kiffin, the coordinator, how are they going to stop triple right, F right 358 Nebraska X team? How are they going to stop blast off the drill right X short 22 X drive halfback burst? How are they going to stop green left west U shift F, F short spire two wide and Z over heads up for 359 smoke? So there was <laughs> such a, there was such a, yeah, you got it. I'm like, damn, I got it, coach. I got it. I don't even know what these plays are. But you know what I mean? I said, yeah, we're declaring war. 
but what he did, our defense was well known for you know being a dominant defense. But but Gruden brought in probably 15 to 19 free agents that year. He brought in Joe Jervicious and Kenny McCardell and and Robin Oven and Kerry Jenkins and Michael Pittman and and Ken Delger and Ricky Dudley. He upgraded our talent on the roster, and and so we were instantaneous, ready to compete. And we didn't talk about being great. We talked about let's just compete today. And during the season, it took a while to learn how to call those plays. I just called and, you know, in the huddle and what his audibles and all those kind of things. But the great thing about being with Gruden was some coordinators, you're with them, you know, they, they install the plays in the meeting and then you'll go back and they, they leave and start working on the game plan. And then you just, you're with your QB coach, but then the play call is not really getting to hear what your ideas or, you know, certain things, certain reads or whatever. And, uh, but Gruden, you're with him from 7.30 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. And you agreed on plays. And he's probably the easiest coach for me to ever play because you were with him all day long. And um, so I loved it. And then but Gruden, you were 3-1 and one the whole season, every four games. And ended up season 12-4. and four. Early in the year, we got beat by Philadelphia. That was the nemesis for Tampa Bay Buccaneer football. And uh, they'd beat us in the playoffs the last couple of years. And so they beat us on October 20th. 2002, like a drum up there in the middle of the season, and then, but then it came the NFC Championship game, and then um, playing in the cold, playing in the vent, the last game of the season. You played on that field; it was terrible, it was cold. <laughs> and and I remember Gruden the night before he said, "Listen, dude, he said something bad might happen during the game. Just don't panic," is what he told our team. And then they run the opening kickoff back to our 25 yard line, and then Deuce Staley runs a touchdown the next play, and then next thing you know was. Um, we come back and we end up winning the game by 27 to 10. And, you know, last game of the bet was pretty cool to shut it down. Then, then next week went to San Diego for the Super Bowl. How much do you think, uh, by Gruden being the Raiders coach the, the, the year before, how much did he know about that Raider team going into that Super Bowl? Yeah, it's, it's been brought up to me a lot. And I, I really kind of, it's funny what people say think or say, and I like to kind of flip the script on him a little bit. Honestly, he doesn't help. But people always talk about, you know, how they, we, how we knew their plays. Well, they had a new coordinator. <laughs> they had a different coordinator. And what's interesting, Gruden was their coach for four years, so they should have known our plays as much as anybody. You know what I'm saying? Right. No, no, <laughs> so I get that's, it. That's what, pe- that's what people don't understand. I'm like, dude, y'all, he was your coach for four years. He just – when he brought the plays up, he just changed the, from Oakland Raiders to Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, they know the personnel, yeah. But that day, they they were they had listen, they had Hall of Famers, and, you know, great players, and Rich Gannon, and Bill Romanowski, and Tim Brown, and Jerry Rice, and the list goes on. And that day, they were they were a great great team. And that day, just kind of things went our way. So, it's kind of a neat story for him, but it's great that both teams you know played in that game. That's one of the greatest defensive teams in, in the history of the NFL. You mentioned John Lynch. He's been on the show. Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks. How much did that benefit you during the regular season, practicing against those guys? I, I would assume practicing against them, any defense you face isn't going to be them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, during the season, you, you really kind of run against a scout team, just the looks of the other team. Right. But in mini camps and training camp, you're looking at practicing over probably 50 practices. So being competitive, that's what I talked about when Gruden came in. We're going to make both sides of the ball competitive. So 
I mean, you're trying to whip their butt every day, you know, and it's bragging rights. And but you see why they're so great. Why the you know Lynch and Brooks and Sapp and have made the Hall of Fame. Hopefully, Ronde Barber and Simeon Rice. And but the team was full of great, great players. We had Keyshawn Johnson and Mike Allstott and Keenan McCardell. So it was just competitive on both sides every day. You wanted you wanted to win. So, but that defense was dominant, and there's a reason why some of those guys have made the Hall of Fame. I asked Johnny this question. 2002 Bucks against the 2021 Brady's Bucks. Who wins? I think we win. <laughs> he gave me the same answer. Yeah, yeah. I, but I think what's so great about it, it's not about who would win. I think there's so many similarities because obviously we had a great, great defense. But if you look at the team that they won last year, they scored during the regular season, they scored 145 points off of turnovers. And the regular season, and then the playoffs, they scored 45 points off of turnovers. At one point, that was, and we were in Gruden's first year of his system. Last year, they were in a pandemic. First year for Tom Brady in that system. They brought in 10 free agents. We brought in like 15. And, and so we started out slow. Last year, they were seven to five, or they didn't even going to make the playoffs. And they went hot and won their last eight games. So I actually think, the, you know, the game's changed with the rules and points scored and all those kind of things with yards and stuff. But I think it would have been a great, great game and overtime and Martin Grammatica would have hit the game-winning field goal for us. <laughs> I love but it. I think That's... the sim- similarities between both teams are very, very similar. And you're going to see a lot of Hall of Famers off their team last year too. I think Lynch said he, it's, it was a no contest. We would have blown him out. But I, I like the I like the game winning I like the game winning field goal better. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand three, you have another great year. You throw for under, over thirty eight hundred yards. Going back to the Vikings in two thousand five, what was that for you? I did it in Seattle. I came up as a rookie with the Mariners. Uh, I got traded. I went to the Cincinnati Reds and a. Padres and I went to the Atlanta Braves and I came back to to Seattle in 2001. How was that for you uh, going back to where it all started? Yeah, was, I was kind of getting older at that time and so I had two or three ch- choices to go to Chicago, Seattle, and Miami, I believe. And the more, and I was probably going to back up at that time and I was like, what am I doing here? You know, like where do I want to be? You know, and, I, and the other thing was like learning a new, I didn't want to go live in Seattle. You know, and, and so those kind of just all the way across the country, those kind of things. So I said, you know what, I'm going back to Minnesota. Mike Tice was the head coach. I knew him. We actually played together. It was a system that I already knew. I didn't have to go learn anything. I'd already been in four different systems. It's hard to learn systems after a while. Like it just, it's just, you know, terminology and those kind of things. So I said, I'll go back to Minnesota. I knew, you know, I knew where to live, knew how to get around in Minnesota. Had a lot of great friends up there. I'd been there for seven years prior and, and uh, so I, I thought it was a great choice by me, and and just and I knew my my wife Nikki and our two boys had been a good fit too. So I just it was easy. But even though I was going as a backup, that just I knew that'd be a good spot for us as a family. You end up going to the Cowboys oh uh, seven oh eight, backed up Romo, and uh, you take it to the house in two thousand nine. What I wanted to cover, I. I you were a lot of different places, um, Brad. You, you played on a lot of different teams with a lot of great players, played against a lot of great players. And as a, as a baseball player, I, I did the same. 
You know, I played for four or yep. five different organizations and with and against, and, and obviously in baseball, it's different, uh, you know, the pitcher aspect to it. And I always, I always didn't like pitchers, and, but a couple of my, that became really good buddies of mine were pitchers and I didn't like it because it seemed right. like one, one day we're going to be an opponent and I don't want them to announce my name, me come to the plate, and you give me that smile because we're buddies. I, I felt like that right. gave them an edge. I felt like if I just had a casual relationship with them when they were my teammates and, and kept it professional, I felt like I kept the advantage because I knew one day we were going to be opponents somewhere. I'm interested, yep. in, the, especially from the quarterback position, but playing with and against so many players, how did you feel when now you were on the other side? And say a John Lynch is on defense playing against you. Uh, who do you think had the edge in that situation, or was it a wash because you both knew each other's tendencies? Well, it's a team game, so it's not just the hitter versus the pitcher, which is a little right. bit different in your case. But, but you know what? You, what you learn is coordinators' tendencies. So, I, I learned at an early age, even in training camp um, practices learn the defensive calls. So if they say, um, you know, maybe they you know, quarters, 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 well, you know it's a certain coverage. Maybe they yell, I'll stop, I'll stop. You know it's a certain, Philly, 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 you know it's a certain coverage. So learn those things, kind of help you through <laughs> the winning edge and practice. You know, just practice. Learn the defensive calls so maybe you know the right audible to get to. And so in my career, when I was in Tampa, when I got, when I was in um Tampa, I played against my former team in Washington. I put, when I was in Tampa, I played against my former team in Minnesota. When I was in Dallas, I played against my former team in Tampa. So, you know, those were all things. You got to learn who these coordinators were. I remember when I was in Tampa, uh, Monty Kiffin was the defense coordinator. I went into his room, his defensive room, like a, it was like a cheat sheet. I ain't going to lie. I went and took every call off his board when I was with him in Tampa in practice so I would know all his calls, okay? <laughs> Right. So, and and so when I'm in Dallas, I listen. I knew all his calls and the, you know what he's looking at. And so you don't ever give away if you're the hitter. You don't say, "Man, I hate that," you know, that outside curveball or whatever it is. I hate that split finger fastball. And then they they're gonna pitch it to you, you know. So in football, I want to know their calls, their tendencies, and so those things are real. But it's more team oriented than the personal one on one with you and the pitcher. Uh, 2015. All right, tell me this. I read this doing my research he admitting that he admitted that uh, you know we had the tom brady deflate gate as a as a yeah. baseball player i'd look at that stuff and you know the fans get all up in arms about certain things uh, because a right. lot of times they they don't know what it's like to be in that huddle they don't know what it's like to be on that major league field where to us it's a different ball game tell me about the uh rubbing up the footballs or, or whatever that controversy was where they said, where they yeah. said, Brad Johnson admits to, to having the, the yeah. ball boys, you know, doctor the footballs. I know from an yeah. athlete standpoint, well, I'll tell you this, they make all this, you know, all these, all this hoopla about the baseballs and, oh, they're using right. a substance. I'm laughing at these guys. I said, they've been using a substance forever. That's what pitchers yeah. do. They use substances and we can't catch him, but I never want a pitcher having something. But I'll tell you this, right. if he's my teammate and he's going to help me win and he likes to get a scuff baseball, with a baseball, there's two things. It, you can get the scuff, 
But once you get right. the scuff, you, you got to know how to use the scuff. So I had certain teammates throughout the years that loved having a scuff. So I'll, anytime I could get a scuff, I'd tell the catcher between innings, throw the ball, get short hop me. It'll hit the dirt right. and I get a scuff for the guy I got on the mound. Now, some of the pitchers don't don't want the scuff because they can't control it. So I understand right. that that you know, that edge we try to get. And I would try to do it anytime I could. I'll tell you, if a reliever right. needed some pine tar for that ball, I'd pack the pine yeah. tar for him. We'd throw it around the horn. <laughs> I'd get it to him. Tell me about that supposed yeah. controversy that when yeah. Big Bad Brad, Big Bad Brad admitted. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear yeah, it. It, was, it. Yeah, it was the biggest mistake. Not mistake. It was the biggest misunderstanding that was ever That's what I figured. Really written about, to be honest with you. So just a quick story of it. Way back when, there was only 12 footballs for the game. So if I'm the home team and you're the visitors, you would have to play with the 12 footballs that I use. Okay. Then they made a rule. You get to break the visitors can use their 12 footballs and the home team gets to use their 12 footballs. Okay. Then the next rule became the home team has 12 footballs. The visitors have 12 footballs. And then there's 12 separate kicking balls. So every time the kickoff is one, a punt is two, extra point is three, kickoff is four. They roll through those 12 balls. And they only get one hour to work in those footballs for the kicking balls. They have the word K, uh, letter K on them. So you have three separate kind of ball boys, the home team, the visitors, and the kicking people, okay? And so, um, and so when you get in the um, Super Bowl, there's 108 balls, not 12, 108. So after the first – play that ball goes to a sponsor play number two it goes to a sponsor play number three it goes to a sponsor well for years and years every quarterback troy eggman phil sims joe montana steve young everyone complained about the balls being brand new brand new so so basically that week early in the week rich gannon and i we did a milk uh got milk uh commercial rich and i played together we had a good relationship and we we're both like dude we, we wish we could get the footballs and work them in because they don't the Super Bowl balls they don't work them in one bit at all. Come out spread right. It'd be like going to Dick's Sporting Goods or Academy Sports right. Right, right off the shelf. Okay, so basically some some guys they got a hold of the balls. They hear the game balls. So basically they worked them in just like you would do for a normal game. And Brett, I never saw the balls. I never touched the balls. Even in warmups, I I warmed up in a glove because I thought I was going to have to play with the slick footballs. So basically, they got worked in. And I did not want to call Rich Gannon, like, Rich, hey, uh, can you, you, you know, do you want to split the cost on getting the balls worked in? You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, how right. you tip your, 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 tip your guys in your clubhouse. It's the same way. So basically, the balls got worked in just like you could, like you could hold on to the ball and throw it. And so, um, and so then there was a statement. I can't remember. It was like 10 or 15 years after the Super Bowl, I said something, yeah, I was able to get the balls worked in for both teams, you know. Well, that article came out and the whole Deflategate thing came out. And then Brad Johnson tampered the Super Bowl. He cheated in the Super Bowl. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I had every major network, a TV station, radio stations, phone rang off the hook, trying to get a hold of me and go through this whole thing. And so people never really understood the story. I honestly, Brett, and then the first phone call I made was to Rich Cannon. And Rich completely understood, and he's like, Brad, I appreciate you getting the balls worked in. You know, so he was – there was not any – there was nothing that took place that 
wouldn't have happened anyway for any team. So, but you learn about integrity um, of who you are, and I try to tell my kids that, and explain it to them, and so there was no nothing. I felt like I did the right thing. I honestly felt like I should have got reimbursed by the NFL for doing their job. And and so what was so unique about two years later, I think Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, they all went to the commission. They got it to where those 108 balls got to be where they could be worked in before the game. So that's that's the, that was the truth of the story and really not much more to it. I couldn't imagine that. I mean, just, oh, for the Super Bowl only, we're going to have these yeah, brand-new I mean, slick think, balls. Think about it. Think about it. Like in tennis, they – if you don't like the ball, you throw it to the side. And right. In bowling, you get to you change the ball. In baseball, you change your ball. In hockey, you take the puck, and they give you a new puck. Right? It's the most important thing in that whole stadium. The most important instrument in that whole stadium is the ball. And it should especially be for you. Especially for you. Like, yes. Yeah. No. No cheating. It's just straight up the way you can at least grip the ball and throw it. Uh, your son Max uh, plays plays at LSU. Um, I don't know about you. I, I've got a son that just signed professionally, and uh, man, I get more nervous than I've ever been on <laughs> on a baseball field watching him on an app on my iPhone. And uh, yeah. but it's really cool, and and it's it's emotional. I get you know when he does something good, I kind of get goosebumps. Um, but but I also feel like for him, like I want to help him, but I can't. I was wondering when you watch your son play, uh, what's that like? For me, it's pretty special. It's pretty cool, but it's nerve wracking. I was, I'm, I'm just asking, I'm polling other fathers yeah. that played, that yeah. played at the highest level, uh, watching their sons come up, kind of pursuing their dream. Yeah, we have uh, my, my wife, Nikki and I, we got two boys. Jake is our younger son. He's a senior in high school. He's committed to go to LSU next year as a tight end. And, uh, and, and so when you watch him as a tight end, you're like, you become the prima donna dad. Like, let's throw, the, let's throw him the ball. You know what I mean? But I'm a dad that doesn't know how to teach him how to block, how to tackle, how to catch, how to run routes. You know, so you kind of just, you relax when you go to the game. With Max, our other son, he's, a, he's in the second year at LSU. And I pretty much coach him out of the womb. As far as you know, how to grip the ball and three-step, five-step coverages, you know who to throw to. I coach him all these years, and so the quarterback's got you. You got the ball in your hands. It's like a pitcher. You got the ball in your hands at all times. So every play is critical. And but you know, so it's it's fun to watch him coach him in youth football and middle school football and high school football. But now I'm the dad eating popcorn in the stands. I can't tell him who to throw to. I can't do anything. You know, you're just kind of at the mercy, but. It's fun to watch him live uh, his dream, his passions, and just, you know, go make plays and lead his own team and, and, you know, have the career that he's having. Biggest influence in your football life? Uh, wow. Um, I'd probably say John Gruden, to be honest with you. Not just because he won a Super Bowl, but just I was ready for him when he taught me and as much as he, as much as he did teach me. And then I think with him, I felt like he believed in me or at least he made me feel like he believed in me, you know, and um, and we were able to win a world title together. So he's probably my greatest impact on my football career. All right. Brad Johnson, I appreciate it, man. This was this was very cool getting a chance to talk to you and and 
I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. I, I, I loved your, I love your energy. I love how you are. I love how you are as a dad uh, with your kids, just from the, the little time we spent together today. Go see, go check out Brad on TikTok. It's worth it. I think it's Big Bad Brad 14. Go check him out if you haven't. Uh, this It's been a pleasure, Brad, and I appreciate coming on the show. What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dano. Hey, guys. All right, Brad. This one comes from Kurt in Phoenix, and he wants to know this. Brad, what is media day like at the Super Bowl? Wow. You know what? It's it's a great question. Media day at the Super Bowl, There's instead of having your local media, six members of your your local media asking you questions. Now you could have 50 people right there with the microphone, right there with the bright lights. And it's not going to be heard in your local media. It's going to be heard worldwide. And the one great piece of advice I was given going into that was it's an unbelievable opportunity to tell your story of who you are. If you get asked the same question twice and answer it the same way and give, give the people what they want. So it was an unbelievable opportunity and thankful for that, but it's media times a hundred. Brad Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Got a great, great thing going. I'm a fan. Thank you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound, don't you? Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag <laughs> time. Well, I don't know if I don't know if it's that sound. Well, it is right now. Okay, Brady. AJ and Tempe wants to know this, Brett. What is the loudest stadium you've ever played in, and does it affect you? Loudest stadium. It's got to be one of the domes. Uh, probably the Metrodome in Minnesota. Now you know they have a new stadium, but back in the day, uh, that was the loudest. King Dome. When I first came up with the with the Mariners, that was pretty loud. But we weren't very good back then, so there, there usually wasn't fifty thousand in in the in the park. Uh, so I yeah, I'm gonna have to go with the Metrodome in in Minnesota. As far as affecting you. Um, not really, you know, you have the uh, ability after a while and, and it comes with experience to kind of tune that out. I mean, I really, when there's the more people in the stadium, the more I really can't hear anything. And, and I kind of tune it all out. The toughest times for me, to be honest, is a place like Tampa Bay, old Marlins, when they played at Joe Robbie stadium, when there might be seven, 8,000 people in the crowd and I can hear individuals yelling at me, maybe talking about my mom, which I didn't appreciate <laughs> by the way, <laughs> but uh, the, the loud crowds. No, it just, it, for me, I loved it. It was just made it a, an electric atmosphere. All right. Let's dig on back into the old mailbag. I've read this one comes from Joe in Texas, and he wants to know this. Brett, are you going to go see the new James Bond movie? I like that new James Bond. Uh, I like Roger Moore. He was my favorite. But the new guy, I kind of dig him. I think he's cool. I will say, yes, I will. All right. Well, there's a good answer for you. And that is going to do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag and Podcast. <laughs> I just really, really enjoy that sound effect. And anytime I have a chance a to use it, I'm going to use it. What's that? You're having quite a day. I'm having a day. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. 
The EP is Rich Herrera. Digital content is all done by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boom Podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Do it again soon. See ya.